Well, good morning. Back when you were in school, and some of you are still in school, were you, were you popular? Were you part of the in crowd, or did, were you a little bit more like somebody on the outside looking in? Back in 2003, there was a, a musical on Broadway that went on to become uh, the second greatest revenue producer of all time, and there were two unlikely characters who were at the center of this musical, one named Galinda and the other Elphaba, and they had opposing personalities. Galinda was this uh, self-absorbed, beautiful, popular person in every way, and Elphaba was living a life that was marked quite literally as anything but popular, and Galinda decided that she was going to adopt Elphaba as her uh, project to help her somehow learn how to be popular. She was going to give her a makeover. And, uh, well, here's how part of it's described in the musical itself. Whenever I see someone less fortunate than I, and let's face it, who is it? Less fortunate than I, my tender heart tends to start to bleed. And when someone needs a makeover, I simply have to take over. I know, I know exactly what they need. And even in your case, though it's the toughest case I've yet to face, don't worry, I'm determined to succeed. Follow my lead, and yes, indeed. You will be popular. You're gonna be popular. I'll teach you the proper poise when you talk to boys. Little ways to flirt and flounce. I'll show you what shoes to wear, how to fix your hair. Everything that really counts to be popular. I'll help you be popular. You'll hang with the right cohorts. You'll be good at sports. Know the slang you've got to know. So let's start, because you've got an awfully long way to go. And though you protest your disinterest, I know clandestinely. You're gonna grin and bear it, your newfound popularity. doesn't take a song from a Broadway musical to remind us that some of us are more popular than others. And how we're perceived, particularly in our formative years, has profound impact on us. So let me, let me ask, are you pretty? Are you, are you popular? Are you smart? Do the, do the clothes that you wear set, your, set yourself off in a popular way, or do they, do they embarrass you? Do you live in a house? that's on the right or the wrong side of town. Can you letter in any sport, get the lead in any kind of a play? Do you get picked first, or are you more likely to get picked last? 
Now, when you think about these things, it kind of brings back a sense of memory and wondering what it was like when you were growing up and how you were formed, and you remember how people could be sometimes nice or cruel. But popularity doesn't just dog us when we're young. It it follows us all through life. We are judged by where we live, what kind of job we have or we don't have. Whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether the car we drive is is the right kind, whether we've earned a PhD or we can't even get our our GED, they're, they're all a part of the marks that we have. Whether we're black or white, fat or thin, athletic or clumsy, whether we're a professional or whether we're blue collar, whether we're a Republican or whether we're a Democrat, whether we're a man or a woman, whether we're beautiful or, or ugly. There was a guy named Dan McCoy who a few years ago uh, set up a, um, a, a group, an organization that he called Uglies Unlimited. He was concerned because he even noticed that sometimes when people were requesting jobs, that uh, they said you needed to look a certain way or act a certain way. He saw a selective bias in the media. You ever seen an ugly person on the cover of a magazine or a, an anchor, a news anchor, or somebody else that, that isn't beautiful? Aren't the good guys always the ones that look nice and the, and the bad guys always the ones that are, well, ugly? McCoy said when he was putting his group together that there are unattractive people, and so his organization was to celebrate some of those that were unattractive. He, he described it this way, secretaries with warts, stewardesses with pimples, salesmen without teeth, policemen with freckles, barbers without hair, short people, very tall people, fat people, skinny people, and the list goes on. And not content with just pointing to the problems, he decided that he was going to try to do something about the solution. And so they lobbied for people that they called uglies. And they had some measure of success of getting people into jobs and positions in a different way. When I, when I first read several news car articles about this uh, some time ago, I, I tried to find the website, but I, I couldn't find the website. And I figured that maybe somebody looked at the website and thought it looked ugly too, so they had to take it down. I, I don't know exactly what the case was. We can smile about what it's like to be cool, but it's cruel sometimes in our life when we experience it personally. Now, the New Testament writer James has something to say about that too, to help us understand that could be a serious problem in the church. And so in Blue Jeans Theology today, we come to a portion of scripture where he says this. Suppose, suppose he says, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Now, you need to know that ring wearing back then was a pretty, pretty big deal. And if you wanted to impress somebody, you would, you would wear rings on just about everything except the knuckle. Multiple dazzling layers of good stuff. In fact, they even had rent-a-ring shops where you could go and get a short-term rent on a, on, a, on a beautiful thing that you could put there to impress somebody from some big occasion. You didn't want to be outdone. You didn't want to be outringed. Now, aren't you glad that we don't have that sort of thing in our culture today, that you would never see a knockoff Rolex on a, on a street corner or a Louis Vuitton bag that somebody would, would buy that's not really the real thing but to impress, and let's not look around in here, but sometimes even those things make their way inside sacred walls because we like, we like to be noticed. We... 
we like. And so in the story that James paints for us, there is this elegantly dressed fellow who comes in to the door of the worship gathering. He's met by an usher and he's quickly escorted to the front of the room. He has shown special attention and told, here, have this special seat for you. And every eye in the crowd notices the man as he makes his way to his place. And then then a moment later, another man comes into the church door and James describes him as being poor in shabby clothes. Now, the word that's used here to, arrive, to describe poor is not just a little poor, but somebody who really has to beg for, for a living, threadbare, ringless, except maybe for a pierced ear that sometimes a slave would have with just some basic poor metal. Perhaps shoeless smell emanating from dirty feet, unwashed body. You would catch wind of his odor, perhaps, before you would even see the countenance of his body and the clothes that he wore. And the same usher that just brought this rich man up to the front looks at this poor man and mutters to himself, Oh, you stand here, way back over here, or if you prefer to sit, you can sit by my feet on the floor. No prominent place for him, no place at all, unless you consider back corners or by feet, prominent places. And the underlying message of the church in this usher to this poor man was, you don't matter. You don't matter to me. You don't matter to us. You're not really popular. Now, James sets up this whole hypothetical of this description that we've just looked at in verse 1 by saying this, my brothers, as believers in our our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. And then he ends, bookends this little scenario by saying, if you do, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Just so you didn't miss what he had to say, those three words, don't show favoritism, would you say them with me? Don't show favoritism. Now, the same two words are used in some other places in Scripture to describe not just relating to poverty, but other kinds of things that can cause us to pass judgment on each other. Like in in Romans 2, Paul warns about racial and religious prejudice, particularly between Jews and Gentiles. There are all kinds of categories. You could name your category of a situation where somehow you feel superior to somebody else. I'm cool and you are not. The differences that matter in the world, James says, should not be things that divide us in the church. The church has or should have a different seating chart. There are no first or second class saints or really even third class sinners. Now let me ask you what may become an awkward question as we work our way through this text. Do you think that this message to this first century church needs to be heard and said to our 21st century 
church. The question is, do we show favoritism? Well, think about it. Who's on, who's on your cool list? Is the person next to you comfortably there? Have you, have you ever given up your seat for somebody else or said, hey, come sit by me? Someone that really would not be on that popular list. Now, I'm not just talking about rich and poor. That's what James is trying to say here. But I'm talking about all the ways that people are marked in life as having worth or non-worth. Whatever category you come up with, James is saying, don't show favoritism. Why? Well, he helps us out after he sets up the scenario. He says, here's some some reasons why it's something that you shouldn't do. It's wrong because he says, when you practice partiality, you ignore God's example. God does not treat people that way. Listen, my dear brothers, he says, has... Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Now, all throughout history, what's happened is that God has somehow loved the people who seem to be unnoticeable, unlovable. People that really don't deserve to be noticed. What is it about God in this strange way that he's drawn to people that are typically in the culture Unpopular. It's almost like he plays popularity or favorites with those that, that the world moves into another category. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, after reminding the children of Israel that God had set his affection on their ancestors and that he'd loved them and chosen them to be their descendants above all the nation, it goes on quickly to say this, that God, great God, mighty and awesome, shows no impartiality and that he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, giving them food and clothing, and that the children of Israel are to love those who are foreigners too, for they themselves were once foreigners in Egypt. God loves insiders, that's okay, but he loves outsiders too, not just in some begrudging way, but in an eager way. I'm reminded... In reminding Israel of that, he says, don't ever come to think of yourself as being so cool. Don't imagine that God's choosing is all about the fact that you somehow have deserved it. In fact, there is no pecking order in God's love for the world. He loves everyone the same. Strangely enough, we are all popular in his eyes. The church, the Christian faith, is not meant to turn popularity in ways that the world experiences it, but to turn popularity on its head. I like the way the message recurringly when Jesus would get up and say things about this or that and say, well, that, that's the way the world thinks about it, but this is, this is truth. He, he told a story one time about those who give up everything, home, family, field, whatever, to be able to gain eternal life. And he finished it up by saying, this is in Matthew 19, this is the Great reversal, that's the phrase that he uses, the great reversal. Many of the first end up last and the last first. In another place, he says, you'll watch outsiders stream in from east, west, north, and south and sit at the table of God's kingdom. And all the time, you will be outside looking in and wondering, what happened? This, he says again, is the great reversal. The last in line, put at the head of the line, the so-called 
first, ending up last. What is it with God and his and his his choices? How does he how does he turn the social order so much upside down to the great consternation of those that are in charge? to the absolute amazement of those that are outsiders and have been so long deemed unpopular that suddenly are embraced by Jesus. In his ministry, he began in a synagogue in Nazareth by taking a scroll of the prophet Isaiah and not by accident starting with these words. The spirit of the Lord, he said, is on me. Because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord forever. It says that Jesus sat down after he spoke those words, read those words. But actually, if you live back in that time, since everybody didn't have a copy of the scripture, a lot of scripture was memorized. And when they would read scripture, they would think about the context. And so sometimes the mind would go on after that. And If the minds were running further after those words from Isaiah, it went right on to say, to bestow upon them the crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Don't you love that phrase, beauty for ashes? That that praise comes into our lives, lots of souls beaten down by life and feeling somehow made to not be worth anything at all, wrapped up in the garment of praise. Going without a coat on a cold or winter day is tough, but never finding the warm embrace of praise, of worth is worse. Mother Teresa once said, Loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible poverty. There are a lot of things in life that are worse than just being poor. City Gospel Mission, which is a wonderful ministry in the Cincinnati area, on its website one time posted this, poverty is not just a condition of not having enough money. Same, same thought. Poor in spirit not having wealth, but even worse, not having worth. To feel like nobody cares. One day, Jesus stopped at the table of a, of a man who was despised by all of the crowd. He was a, he was a tax collector. And he, he spoke to him, probably with sneers from those that were watching what was going on nearby. And he, and he said to this nobody, this terribly unpopular man, hey, come, follow me. And the guy is, is amazed. Jesus is speaking to him. He is speaking worth and he, he invites him to his house and he invite, invites all of his worthless friends. Now, they're not poor, but they are, they are poor in relationship because they are, they are deemed as people with no worth by most that are there. You don't have to be poor to be an outcast. There's story after story. There was a woman at a well in Samaria and she had been married about five times, and the one she was living with wasn't her husband, and she was socially distanced in those days from anybody that got around her because she was not worth anything, yet Jesus is talking to her right here at this well, and she is so overwhelmed by it that she goes back to her village, and she said, I want you to come and see this man 
who has told me everything about myself, everything that I ever did. Now think about the stuff that she had done that Jesus is, is telling her that he knows about, and yet he, he embraces her in a social relationship, and the whole community comes back to her, back to him, to hear what it was all about. He let her know that she mattered. He wasn't indifferent to her sin, but he embraced her worth. Now, when you look around here, and some of you are watching online, so just imagine you're looking around on a, on a typical day. How many of the people that are around here are exactly like you? Who, who, who do you see that's exactly like you? Same color of skin or is there somebody around you that has an unwashed body or a life that's coated by sin? Do you dare follow the example of Christ and to say with him that these people have worth? I'll admit a lot of times it's hard for me to see past all these externals that are part of our, our judgment. Now, there are people here who probably make good salaries and some that have some government assistance. There Maybe some varying shades of skin or education, different houses that we live in. But if you looked at a pictorial directory of, of this church or any church, would it, would it have people that looked like this? Would some of the pages include people that you might stamp as unpopular? James said, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. In a sermon on the mount, he said, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Could it be that the population of heaven might look more like that than like, than like this? That the directory of heaven will be a whole company of outcasts, of people who in life were not valued, but in God's sight were loved. James, after pointing out this heavenly inheritance of the poor, goes on to say, but you have insulted the poor. Ironically, James says, somewhat as an aside, that they're giving deference to the rich, but the rich people are the ones that are exploiting them. They're dragging them into court that are slandering their noble name. And yet, these are the ones that somehow, for some reason, because you think they're important, that you are giving these chief seats. He says, you're not even being consistent with your practice. But back to the poor, he he could have reminded them that Jesus one time told a story about judgment where the people were standing before the throne and they said, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger in need or of clothes or sick or in prison and we didn't help you? We would, have, we would have made room for you, Jesus. We would have given you a seat if we'd only known that it was you. And Jesus said, that's, that's the point. You did not notice that in these, the least, the less, the unpopular that's me. I think too often the church is full of the haves and not the have-nots. We're more likely to be among the popular than among those who really have an awful long way to go. But James says, if we do that, if we show preference, we're not following God's example. But worse, we are breaking God's law. If you really... Keep the royal law found in Scripture, James says. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. But if you show favoritism, your sin, you sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. In Jesus' day, there were law keepers and there were law 
breakers. There were religious folks who made long lists of what kind of laws you needed to follow and even meticulously helped you understand what specific ways you followed those laws. And they prided themselves in that law-keeping. Can you imagine, to these rule-keepers' surprise, what it felt like when Jesus said to them, you Pharisees and teachers are show-offs, and you're in for trouble. You give God a tenth of the spices from your garden, and you proudly think that that is somehow pressing beyond the limit, yet you neglect the more important matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the important things that you should have done. A little earlier, he said to some other similar leaders, everything they do is to show off in front of others. They even make a big show of wearing scripture verses on their foreheads and their arms, and they, they wear big tassels for everyone to see. They, they love the best seats at banquets and the front seats at the meeting places. But whoever is the greater, he says, should be the servant of the others. If you put yourself above others, you will be put down. But if you humble yourself, you will be honored. There's more of that great reversal stuff. These leaders that James is speaking to loved to be popular, focused on themselves with little concern for others, especially those that were in need, hungry, poor. I wonder if Jesus ever looks at the church today and in frustration says, you do a pretty good job of keeping rules, but you don't love people. You're concerned about your piety, but you really don't love people that are unpopular. Jesus one time had an expert of the law come up to him and said that he wanted to inherit eternal life in Jesus and he asked what he needed to do. And Jesus, as he often did, turned the, turned the question around on him. And he says, well, what do you think? And he says, well, I, you know, I think you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. To which Jesus said, okay, do that and you'll be okay. And the conversation did not end because the man went on to say, and just who is my neighbor? Who's, who deserves my love? Who Who should I reach out to and embrace? Who's popular to me? We may be pretty good at loving God and loving ourselves, but we are not always so good at loving others. The kind of folks probably who are not here today, who if they walk through the door, we might be less likely to speak with, much less give up our seat. What is the lowest definition of neighbor that I can adopt to somehow squeak myself into the kingdom? Shane Claiborne has written a book called The Irresistible Revolution. It's a convicting book. He talks about how a lot of times in a distorted way we, we see our neighbors. It's an uncomfortable read. I don't necessarily even agree with everything he has to say, but it's the parts that I do understand that I realize I need to listen to that make me even more uncomfortable. He has a prophetic voice. The words that he says shock and trouble you. He doesn't just nudge you. He, he shoves you into trying to see life in a different way. For several years, one of his friends described him as experimenting with the gospel in the streets of Philadelphia, having done the same on the streets of Calcutta with Mother Teresa. He amazingly somehow got the phone number of Mother Teresa. I don't know how you do that, but he got her, her phone number. And he called Mother Teresa and she says, hello, and he, he asked her, this is before he kind of got into his, his inner city ministry, he asked her about the work that she was doing, and she said, come and see. 
And so he did. He went to Calcutta and he saw the broken lives on the, the street. And he describes this spiritual awakening that he had in this way. He says, and I quote, I had come to see that the great tragedy in the church is not that rich Christians do not care about the poor, but that rich Christians do not know the poor. So he came back to Philadelphia and he made his home in the middle of the poor. He discovered a neighborhood of unpopular people. It's hard to love somebody from a distance that you don't know. I think that's the problem the church has. We don't, we, we say we love, but we don't embrace those unlovable people. Love is only meaningfully shared out of the context of a relationship. Too often, the rich and poor live in separate worlds, and we wonder, well, why don't, why don't we understand each other? We don't know each other. I've come to greatly appreciate the ministry of things like City Gospel Mission and Block Ministry in the Cincinnati area and the leaders there, and I've seen what's happened in the inner city. And every time I have joined them and our students at the university where I was would join them, I would see how much I don't know about people that I have not fully valued. When you speak and interact with someone who's outcast, you understand what it feels like not to be loved. Perhaps it means for this church finding ways to get outside the walls and to touch lives that are different than you are. When someone asked Gandhi if he was a Christian, he, he would often reply, ask the poor. They will tell you who the Christians are. I wonder, I wonder if we asked the unpopular if they would say something good about us. James, in a passage that we're going to look at next week, said real religion, the kind that passes muster for God the Father, is this, to reach out to the homeless and loveless in their plight and to guard against corruption from a godless world, to love them like your neighbor. Verses 9 through 11, he goes on to say, he says, if you show favoritism, you sin or are convicted by the law as law breakers. He goes on to talk about adulterers and murderers, and he puts that the big sin category in the, what we might think of as the little sin category of being indifference, big ticket sins and lower ticket sins. And James's words, if you don't care about people, if you show favoritism, that's right up there with all the rest. And God looks at us and sees us in our short-sightedness. Don't play favorites, James says. It ignores God's example. It breaks God's law. And here, here's the bottom line. We land the plane with this. It also invites God's judgment. He closes out these words about lawbreakers in the second chapter, verse 12. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So here, here's my question to you. How do you want to be judged? Do you want to be judged with mercy? or with the total difference of judgment? Do you want to be judged for justice's sake or judged for love's sake? Throughout this passage, he's, he's asking and he's getting into our hearts and saying, how do you judge other people? How, 
How do you decide whether someone is worthy to be loved? And be careful because the way you do that is the way that God is going to judge you. Playing favorites, partiality is really all about judgment. It's about me overinflating my worth over you, feeling better about myself than you. I am prettier, I am wealthier, I am smarter, I am more successful. I matter, you don't. If we play this choose game, James says your judgment is going to become God's judgment. It will invite him to treat you with justice and not with mercy. Which do you want? Maybe God has chosen the poor, James writes, because the poor don't have nearly so much trouble seeing their desperate need in God in contrast to many of us who are convinced that God must really be thankful for how good we are. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes that God chose us in him before the creation of the world and that he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon one time talked about this choosing. He said, it's perfectly obvious that God chose me, he said, because I would never have chosen him. And he said, it's equally true that he must have chosen us before I was born because I'm sure he would never have chosen me afterwards. You know, you and I really are not worth loving by our goodness. The Apostle Paul, when he looked at the mirror of his life after he had lived such a rule-keeping life, said in Philippians 3, 8 through 9, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung is really kind of the frank way he puts it. I've dumped it all on the trash so that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. Or those confessional words in 1 Timothy 1 where he says, Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners. I'm proof, public enemy, sinner number one. Someone who never would have made it apart from his mercy. People who receive mercy need to be dispensers of mercy. Somebody has said that the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. We are all in this common mess together. I am not popular with God because I am good. It's not about my greatness. It's about his greatness. James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. How do you act? Mercy shows. So what are those three, three words that I had you say with me back at the beginning? I want to bring back up into your, to your mind again. He said, what? Don't play Favorites. If you do, you're going you're gonna to ignore God's example. You're going to break God's law. You're going to invite God's judgment. I close with this story. Calvin Miller one time talks about a time when he was getting up, getting ready to, to preach. And before he opened his mouth, uh, somebody walked in the back door. And it was somebody he really did not look or smell or fit the company of the fine dress people that were in there. And the place was full. And and the poor man just made his way up the aisle. And since there was no place offered for him to sit, he just plopped himself down right in the middle of the floor near the front of the pulpit. And the, and the congregation was just flabbergasted. And Miller didn't say anything. He just kept waiting. There was this awkward silence until one of the revered members of the church respected a guy who walked with a cane who had a really nice three-piece suit walked up the aisle, and a lot of people thought that he was going to go up there and give the guy what for. And 
tell him that he needed to find some better place to sit. But to the surprise of all who were watching, the man put his cane down on the floor and painfully lowered himself to the place where the man was and sat on the floor beside him. Miller said that the opening words to his sermon were this, you probably won't remember a thing I say today, but you will never forget the sermon that you just saw. Some have said that St. Francis of Assisi, who had a great heart for the poor, one time said, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. So I ask you, what kind of gospel are our lives preaching? Don't play favorites. Those who need to know the love of Christ will always notice. Let me pray for me. Let me pray for you. God, this is, this is a painful passage to read if we uh, really open up our hearts to listen to what it has to say in its fullness. God, I pray that you will give us your heart, your eyes, your arms, your love, your compassion, so that we might live a life that embraces those that the world says aren't important. We thank you for the way you have embraced us. Please help us to be honest and humble about our undeserving character as we offer your love to the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.